Welcome to Business Talk Sister Talk. I'm Becca. And I'm Ruthie. And today's episode is book promotion. And with us, we have uh, Matthew W. Quinn. Thank you so much for being with us today. We are so excited to have you. Uh, thank you. You're welcome. I'm always glad to help out. Yeah. So can you tell us what is your business? Okay. Um, by day, I'm a high school history teacher, but by night and afternoons and weekends, I'm a um, science fiction fantasy writer. And, and most of my stuff, but not all of it, is independently published. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So why did you start doing it? Uh, well, I've always wanted to be a writer. I, mean, I remember when I was a very little kid, my grandmother, she was a teacher for a different school system, had a very old electric typewriter that I remember typing stories on, like a lot of it was just stuff I made up, like one involving dinosaurs and diving helmets. I've been probably about four or five. And over the years, I've written a lot of short fiction. I didn't sell any until about 2006. So now I have written books and I've, some, some of them I've sold to small presses like my novella, Little People, Big Guns. And there's one called The Thing in the Woods. It was sold, I sold to a small press and then got the rights back and republished myself and then independently published a sequel. So that's the thing in the woods and the Atlanta incursion. And now there's a independent fantasy series I have called Battle for the Wastelands. The first book is Battle for the Wastelands. There's a companion novella called Son of Grendel. And I'm working on the um, second full novel called Serpent Sword that I'm hoping to have done and published by the end of the year. We'll see about that. Wow, nice. Okay, so I have so many questions. But the first one, you had said that you had just kind of mentioned kind of your progression, and then you said you started selling in 2006. So what was that um, uh, transition that was, there? Uh, okay, so if, you're, if you want to be a writer, there are places you can find markets to sell. And one of the places I found is a website called Rollin.com, R-A-L-A-N.com. There's a webzine called Chimera Serials, like the Greek mythology monster Chimera. And so I sold them a short story I wrote called I Am the Wendigo. Uh, the Wendigo is a creature from Canadian Native American mythology. It's like the spirit of sort of like cannibalism. Hmm. And the Bigfoot crowd think it might be a more aggressive kind of Bigfoot okay. that like attacks and eats people. <laughs> And so I wrote a story from the perspective of the Wendigo. That's a little morbid. <laughs> yeah, so what? I sold you said that the for spirit 20 bucks. Of, uh, what did you say? Spirit of cannibalism in Canada? Yeah, it's um, Native American mythology. I think it's a taboo against eating people when the winter comes and the food runs out. Hmm. Is It'll turn into a monster that is always starving and ever hungry. can only eat people. Okay. Wow. Object lesson right there. <laughs> Don't yeah, so do that. The things you learn from Bigfoot books in the third grade. I, I'm just like, just shocked that you kept that from third grade until college to, to write that. <laughs> it's been ruminating. He had time to let it, let it percolate. <laughs> yeah, okay. so that was my first sale was for a money order for 20 bucks from a webzine. Okay. Okay. So now you're an author, you're doing a bunch of stuff. How do you do it right now? Most of my money I actually make from conventions. So there's a website called the Southern Fandom Resource Alliance that has a calendar of conventions that are in the greater South, which is basically DC to Florida to Texas to Oklahoma. And Atlanta being a convention city, there's a lot that are close by. So I check the calendar for conventions. Atlanta ones are good, are better because I don't have to drive. Sorry, I have 
I do have to drive. I don't have to spend money on a hotel overnight. This past summer, I went to this um, little convention. A bunch of people wanted to go to Liberty Con, but that was shut down due to the pandemic. So they called it confinement. <laughs> and so I spent a one night at the hotel there, and that all, I did make a very narrow profit, I think, on that. But if I didn't have to stay overnight in Dalton, I probably made much more. Um, so how do you decide if a convention is going to be worth it for you? What goes into your decision-making process for profitability? Okay, so I don't have to stay overnight somewhere else because because ho- books are rather low margin. So 90 bucks for an overnight hotel stay, that could is a great big bite out of profit. Like for example, my last big convention was a toy and comic show in Augusta, Labor Day weekend. And my total profit was around $125. But I had some relatives in Augusta I was staying with. So two nights of hotel, say hundred bucks each. I'm that that means I've lost $75. Yeah. Avoiding staying overnight. Um, if I can find someone to split the table with, like both times I attended Days of the Dead, I um, went with um, other authors. The first time was with T.S. Dan, who also lives in Atlanta, and Nathan McCullough, who lives further out of town, but he's willing to come in and split a table with me. So that was a very big factor in being able to make profit both times. Okay. So those are kind of your best practices for convention choosing and then how do you prepare to attend a convention well one way to attend a convention that's real nice is if you can be a guest because you don't have to pay for anything like i attended anacrocon this past february and i was a guest so i was able to um attend for free as long as i presented a certain number of panels which i did i was also a guest at hypericon so the problem with hypericon is more that the two nights hotel stay than the fee how do you so, get to be a guest? Uh, well, I can play up that my my knowledge and experience on certain things like um, independent writing and publishing. Let's see, Hypericon, I presented on like genre blending. So there's, if you have you ever read the book or watched TV show, The Strain? No, I have not. <laughs> it was on FX. It was about vampires. And it's like a combination medical thriller because the vampire vampirism is a virus that converts, that's carried by worms, that converts the human body into a mechanism for spreading the worms that carry the virus. So it is very scientifically fascinating, also incredibly gross. So that's genre blending, it's horror, it's a medical thriller, like I like Outbreak, and then eventually gets full on post-apocalyptic later in the series. So I talked a good bit about The Strain. In your presentation, you talked about the book as a guest? yeah, so I knew I could talk about that about the strain, even though I didn't write it. It's Guillermo del Toro who wrote it. And um, let's see, my own work, um, Battle for the Wastelands, I call it Dark Tower meets Game of Thrones. It's like a fantasy because it's not our world. It's a Western because that's the aesthetics of the world. It's post-apocalyptic. Hold on, hold on. What is post-apocalyptic defined as? After something goes very wrong, so like a nuclear war, like an asteroid impact. Okay. I didn't know that was a genre. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a genre. Like, um, like right now in the indie world, there's a whole lot of after the electromagnetic pulse fiction. Like all the computers and power go out because of electromagnetic pulse. Like a 
high altitude nuclear detonation. So there are a lot of like indie action stories about what happens after the EMP. Like it's oddly specific for an apocalypse. So basically a way to get on panels is have an area of expertise. So um, with the genre blending panel Hypericon, I was able to talk up the strain, which I didn't write and battle for the wastelands, which I did, or the X-Files, which blends like they have the overall alien invasion plot line, sci-fi. You have like magic fantasy horror, just the overall aesthetic. It's also kind of like a crime drama. So the X-Files example of genre blending. And I have a master's degree in world history. So like a steampunk alternate history, world building type panel, that's something I can play up. So if I can find a convention where I can be a guest, I can pitch myself as a subject matter expert in something. Okay. And wow. that way so I can potentially okay. attend the event for free. So it's kind of like you get to just talk about what you love and then people listen. So that's cool. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. That's also why being a teacher can be so much fun. <laughs> it's a captive audience. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. I tell the kids that. And then I start laughing maniacally. <laughs> I'm sure they love that. <laughs> um, so you kind of mentioned what? about like the strains and and see using that as an example of genre blending um but how valuable is it to read other authors and and watch um like these similar genres of things that you already are kind of into and, and how has that helped you kind of develop as an author well you can learn from other authors quite a bit like i'm a former member of my critique group is an atlanta author named james r tuck and he taught me a way to write without using the word said or even speech tags at all. Like instead of saying, you know, you moron, she said angrily, you know, you moron, she shouted, or she glared, you moron, exclamation point. Titan, 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 Titan. So I have such a technique I learned from another writer. And you learn technique, improve, improve your techniques from better writers in general. Like um, Stephen King, Dean Koontz, these are people who are very good. Huh. So, okay. When we kind of heard you say that you're a history teacher and stuff, what has that had an impact or are other books that are classics, have they impacted your writing or your ability to uh, storytell in different ways? Oh, quite a bit. Like when I got my master's at Georgia State, I took a class where I read a book called Killing for Coal. It's about this um, series of strikes and fights between striking miners and the Colorado State Militia in the early 20th century. And, and that combined with something like steampunk is the steam, steampunk fiction a lot of times is just um, parasols and airships and all very nice and uh, Jane Austen-y. But if you realize the, cult, the time period in culture which steampunk is based is an age of class warfare, strikes and um, labor violence and whatnot. So when I was doing Battle for the Wastelands, I um, made labor and strikes a very big part of it in a way that a lot of steampunk does not touch on because of what I learned in the getting my master's degree. So almost like being true to the actual genre instead of what people have made it to be. Yeah. So knowing history, you know, is very helpful for world building because many fantasy worlds are based on history real history. So like when J.R. Tolkien was talking about the decline of Gondor, he compared it to Byzantium, the Byzantine Empire. How did you know that? 
Um, I for I got for a present, a friend of mine gave me the letters of J.R. Tolkien, which so he's writing about his world to somebody. So he's writing about the decline of Gondor. He compared to the end of the Byzantine Empire, the eastern half of Rome, that just weakened and weakened and weakened. Eventually, the Ottoman Turks put it out of its misery. And like fan, most fantasy land is fake medieval Europe, which is based on Tolkien, because everyone's been ripping them off for decades now. But then some some fantasy is different. So there's um one fantasy series which is based on kind of a conglomeration of China during the Qin and Han dynasties and Southeast Asia. I think the series is called the Dandelion Dynasty or something like that. Hmm. So how does, when you're, when you're getting ready to do um, like an event or um, start promoting your books more, how does social media either help you as a writer or does it have some negatives as well? Well, social media, I, I have a MailChimp email newsletter. And so I, um, whenever I'm at a convention, I have my notebook and I have people sign up their names and emails. So then I add them to my MailChimp newsletter. I have about 400 people on my mailing list. Wow. And so when I have an event that's coming, I announce that it's, I'm going to be there and what I'm going to be bringing. And that's like, how you promote your new books and material too? Yeah. Like I attended an indie writers like festival over the, at the end of the summer. And so I sent out, I was coming and someone who had signed up on my mailing list when I was there last said, I'm going to come so I can get the sequel to the book I bought from you the first time. So how have you utilized um, the different like social media platforms or email and everything to keep your readers engaged and, and with the different things that you're doing? Okay. Well, um, you want to, you know, emphasize what you can give people, not what you can get from them. So with MailChimp, my newsletter, I many times will send them links to this film podcast I'm on called Myopia Movies, hmm. where like they can listen to the podcasts or they can um, read my movie reviews I've written based on notes I've taken while watching the movies for the podcast. Like Myopia, as you watch childhood movies, see if they're still good. <laughs> so um some runs you've done recently are like um one that came out today was daredevil which that would have been like when i was in high school or college okay. which i never saw it so it wasn't in an episode but an episode we did do was like land before time and secret of the, <laughs> the first one the only one that's good there was like eight or something <laughs> Yeah, Don Bluth was only involved in the first one. That's the only good one, mm. as far as I know. I haven't really seen the other ones. They don't have good reputations. See, and um, so, I like, when I watch a movie for the podcast, I take notes, and I turn the notes into a, a movie review, which I have on my blog, and I can repackage for my newsletter to save work. Work smarter, not harder. And it's mm -hmm. giving my newsletter readers something. And a recent newsletter I put out, how I would have done the 2004 King Arthur movie which that was a recent episode of Myopia Movies. So reuse content and what can you give your reader? Yeah, so you kind of mentioned this a little earlier about like learning from a writer's group and stuff. Has that been beneficial for you to have a writer's group or is it not important in the process? Oh, it is very beneficial because for starters, you have, I have to commit to having a chapter or chapters for each meeting, whether I have a chapter written or not. 
So my, I tend to dawdle and spend way too much time on social media, which that's the downside of social media is it's a time suck. So I commit to having chapters so I can run the whole book through the critique group, which incidentally means a draft that gets finally published is much, much better than the first one. Because there's a writer I know named Delilah S. Dawson, who she said the first draft is word vomit. Just get it written. Worry about it being good later. So my first, I ran chapter eight of Serpent Sword, the second Battle for the Wastelands book through my writing group. They're like, and they had so many suggestions how to improve it that it's going to need major rewrites. If I just wrote it by myself and then self-published it, it would be much worse. Hmm. Because that's what the thing with self-publishing is no one is telling you no, or no one is telling you what you did wrong to improve unless you seek it out, like through a critique group. That's like really good advice or really good thoughts on that though, because I mean, a lot of people like publish books because they're like, oh, this is good enough. And I don't really care if anyone else likes it, but I don't necessarily know if that's a way to be profitable long-term. Yeah. Like um, there's a lot of bad self-published books out there. Like people who just finished the book and self-published it without really editing it or also, the writing group is good for networking. Like, thanks to James Tuck, I know Jason Sizemore, who's the head of Apex Publications. It's a small press. And he has, like, did a professional-level critique of draft four or five, which that's what usually is, and it gets to him. And then I revise it heavily based on his instructions. Then he formats it, and, pub- and then I upload it to Amazon. And he got me the hookup with his cover designer, so Battle for the Wastelands and Son of Grendel look, and also the Atlanta Incursion, the sequel to Thing in the Woods, they both look good in terms of packaging, which is very important because a lot of self-published books, like you have the same artist and like five or six books might use the exact same cover, just with different titles. That would be confusing. <laughs> um, so you have been utilizing these um different groups for networking and for learning and for um, improving things. What are some other ways that you prepare to launch a new book? Well, once upon a time, I was a regular participant in something called PitMad. It's like Twitter pitch parties where you would post your book and hashtag it PitMad and people who are participating would retweet it and agents would like it. And then you would send like the first chapters or whatever to an agent. And so I saved the Twitter handles for the people who helped me, like they retweeted it or talked about how great it was. So when the book was finally published, I tweeted the buy links to those people originally, mm. which mm. many, some of them just had quit Twitter. Some of them I tweet at them. I think they blocked me because like, who's this? Why are they spamming me? Like they've forgotten, <laughs> but some people remembered and they retweeted. So I get pretty big spikes early on from the wave of people I'm tweeting at. Is that a technique that you just l- picked up on or did somebody tell you about that? I think I, figured, I think I figured that out on my own because I realized I had all those people who had retweeted it, my pitches, because they liked the concept. So I thought, huh, ready-made market here. Yeah, that's really cool. So and how then do they you, might review. How do you stay motivated with all this? It sounds like of all the things that you've been talking about, it all sounds like a decent amount of work. I mean, you introed with, uh, this is what I do on in my evenings and on my weekends. And <laughs> so like, sounds like a lot of work. How do you stay motivated? Well, going to conventions is fun. You get to talk to people and make quite a bit of money and go to new places. And I like doing those. It's like, and plus it's a 
you can write off so many expenses, like almost like a vacation that's tax deductible. And um, what else? And writing group can be fun, but I mean, a lot of times it's just a matter of discipline. Sometimes you just have to sit down and make yourself do it. Like Brian Keene, he's a horror writer. He blurbed Little People, Big Guns. And he has he was part of the horror show, the Brian Keene podcast. We decided to step away from that to focus more on his writing. And he talks about writing eight hours a day, which since I have a day job, that's not possible. So I need to make sure I use the time I do have efficiently. Well, at the same time, also having a social life and exercising and what doing all those things to stay you know, healthy and functional. So what tools have helped you to um, become a better writer or save time? Do you have any kind of resources that you've been like, these are really great. I would recommend these. And do any of those also apply to promotion? Well, in order for to, to time man, manage your time. Um, Google Calendar, like if you have Google Mail and Google this and Google that, like my father encouraged me to use Google Calendar. And that's a good way to keep organized. You know, every, you know, when everything has to be done. Mm-hmm. So you do and that for when you're going to have to, like you give yourself deadlines for each piece. Yes. Deadli- set deadlines. Tell me when I need to do different things, when I need to follow up and bother people. Like one promotional technique I've learned is booktube, like um, YouTubers who talk about books. So I just had the YouTube ch- channel Books of Blood just put out a review of Little People, Big Guns. So I had in Google Calendar, you know, it's been how long since you submitted to him. Make sure you follow up. Mm-hmm. For promotional tools, I have my calendar. Like on Saturday evening, I need to set up Amazon ads because once I, now that I got the rights back to Thing in the Woods and self-publish it, I can advertise Thing in the Woods using Amazon's AMS system and the sequel comes out. So any so amazon ads so if someone clicks and buys the first one then they might go on to the second one because amazon ads think are only profitable if you have more than one book interesting how did you figure that out uh learning from other other writers like i listen to a lot of writing podcasts do you have any recommendations on writing podcasts that people should check out (laughs) okay there's the sell more the sell more book show the six figure author those are two big ones like the sell more book show is one that recommended get your book into libraries. So I donated some copies to the Gwinnett Library in Gwinnett County, Georgia. And you can see how many times your book's been checked out. Like there are like six holds on two copies. So when when Gwinnett County Library is willing to host events again, I can maybe have like a book talk at the library and bring books to sell. Mm-hmm. Because my first book, book signing event at the library, I had a PowerPoint, I made a PowerPoint. And one of my church friends showed up. She was the one person who came and she bought a copy from me, I guess, to be nice. <laughs> Good to have moral support, right? Yeah. No, uh, she was but- probably excited to read it. She has a friend who's an author and that's really cool. <laughs> probably some of that too. It's not like a, it wasn't a total pity sale, but that's kind of how it felt. <laughs> but, <sighs> but, but the Gwinnett, because Gwinnett has so many people who checked out the books that when I talk to the library people, when things calm down and they put out in their newsletter, they'll have, there was a decent base load of people who have read the book in a way that the first of the first library book talk probably did not have mm-hmm. because I got the book cataloged and then not probably not that long afterward, I arranged the library to have a book signing and they put out in their newsletter, but no one, probably very few people had read the book, mm-hmm. if any. But the Gwinnett Library, now they've had so many people who have read the book now mm-hmm. that this might work. Same with Decatur. Like I, they asked, like the Decatur Library in DeKalb County, they said they could tell me how many times my book has been checked out. 
So Thing in the Woods, as of like last year or the year before, had been checked out three times. Like they okay. track that now. That's and you can just call them up and say, hey, can you tell me how many times my book has been checked out? Yeah. Huh. Wow. That is slick. <laughs> so <laughs> that tip I got from the Sell More Book Show mm. led to me having an idea of where I can have book events. You know, COVID short-circuited that, but where I can have them later. And also, because I had my book in the Cobb County Library, I managed to swing that into a newspaper interview with someone I knew from UGA who works with the Marriott Daily Journal, which in turn, when I had a book signing, people who had read the book, read the article came. Wow. So how did you know who your audience was? Like, I'm just thinking about this. Like, you have such a specific group of readers that are really into that. Well, I do have some, I do, I did create a Facebook fan page to um, run Facebook ads. Mm -hmm. And Facebook, you could set an audience for your ads, like people who are interested in eBooks and, and horror literature and are engaged shoppers. So that narrows the audience down to advertise Facebook via Facebook to the most interested audience of course facebook's most recent ad update you can't do that anymore now it's ebooks or horror fiction or engaged shoppers which is like 100 million people mm. which is useless to me luckily my old audiences from before the update still exist so i can advertise to them <laughs> so i can use those old audiences and facebook said they're working on on that because i they said that i'm not the only author to complain to them about that facebook ads None of my Facebook ads have made a profit. The closest I've come is making $43 in royalties on $50 spend, but they do move copies, or at least they did. My most recent ads haven't, and I suspect that's because that they've advertised to everyone already. Okay. Okay. So my, ne so my next plan is go back to Amazon ads. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that with us. We're going to transition into the sister rock portion of our episode. And Matthew's going to tell us some fun stories about uh, conventions. conventions. <laughs> I'm really excited about this because we started talking about how people start dressing up for conventions. And this is something I've never done. She's always wanted to do. Okay, yes. <laughs> Clarification. I have always wanted to, and no one will do it with me. <laughs> well, well, then go by yourself. Oh, yeah, that's you really my problem is I'm not brave enough to do that. <laughs> so what is it like? Tell us about like the things you've seen and like your experience with that. Well, I've seen some very elaborate and impressive costumes, but I don't want to spend a lot of money on that. Like I once read an interview with a guy who had made a very high, like movie level quality Anakin Skywalker costume. And that's not, and he'd spent so much money on it. That was a contributing factor to his getting divorced. Yikes. Whoa. Okay. So there are some definite cons of dressing up for conventions. <laughs> and then I did an article on Dragon Con for a newspaper I used to work at. And I met a guy who had bought the Necromonger armor from the Chronicles of Riddick movie, like the actual mm -hmm. armor the characters wore. And he's wearing it to conventions. And that was so cool. But again, that's also probably expensive. Yeah. So Wow. So the one time I cosplayed a convention myself, I dressed as Matthew McConaughey's version of Randall Flagg from the Idris Elba Dark Tower movie from a couple of years ago. Mm. So it's basically I was wearing my black suit and a black undershirt and black my black dress shoes and black socks. So it was stuff and I already owned. So it was, I didn't have to spend any money. So the grand total was zero dollars. And here's this necromancer guy who's probably like $100,000 in the hole. <laughs> well, so I, don't think it was, 
I don't think it was that bad because I don't think Chronicles of Riddick made that much money. <laughs> Fair enough. So they Maybe were probably that's how they unloading. Made money. <laughs> so it was probably not that expensive to get the props, which is sad because Chronicles of Riddick is actually pretty cool. Okay, so like movies do that on a regular basis, though they just like get rid of their pl- props and sell them afterwards. Is that common? I have no earthly idea because they made a third Riddick movie because there was Pitch Black Chronicles of Riddick and then just a movie called Riddick. So they probably had to save some of the costumes. Or they really shot themselves in the foot. <laughs> like, oh, shoot, oh, we're going to do another one of these. We should have kept those. We gotta, like on uh, on Daddy Daycare when he's like, there's stuff. <laughs> it's not for sale. <laughs> yeah. So they probably had to do that and take everything yeah. back. So, so, that, so one year I went to Dragon Con Atlanta dressed as evil Matthew McConaughey from the Dark Tower. And I was going to go to a Dark Tower panel. Then I decided to skip it and do something else. It turns out there was a guy dressed as Idris Elba's gunslinger at the panel. And I ran into him the next day. He still had his costume on. I was wearing my normal clothes. So kind of missed a big photo op there. Uh, what a letdown. Did you run home and then switch outfits again? Um, <laughs> Dragon Con has, has like 50 or 60 to 80,000 people. Mm, so there was no and- running. <laughs> And I live, I'd have to get on the MARTA train, go back up to the, art, the nearest MARTA station, walk or take a lift back to my apartment, change, and then come yeah, back to the convention enough. and find the guy again in a convention of 80,000 people. That's not going to happen. Okay, well, now you all know that if you're going to go to a convention, always have your stuff with you at all times. Pack up your backpack with everything you need and never leave the convention. <laughs> or just always dress up so you don't miss the opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Matthew, so much for being here with us this week. It was so fun to, to pick your brain and, and learn from you and just get to enjoy your uh, sense of humor. <laughs> um, yeah, so if you liked our episode, uh, then go ahead and subscribe to us on Apple Podcast and give us a review uh, and we will see you again next week.